conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York. I'm Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. Pastor Well is dedicated to helping servants of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in ministry. We do that by having good conversations with those that are serving the Lord in effective ways. And today we have someone that I have long wanted to have a conversation with. This is Christopher Ash, writer in residence at uh, Tyndale House in Cambridge, England, uh, author of a, a great commentary on Job published by Crossway. Uh, I absolutely love that on the wisdom of the cross. Uh, his book, Married for God, has been a part of my own thinking on marriage. Uh, when I preached a series on marriage at Buck Run, your book was one of those that I read to feed my own soul in preparation for that. Uh, teaching Psalms, Volumes 1 and 2 with Christian Focus. And a, really a, a lot of things. Welcome to Pastor Well. Thank you. I, I'm so happy that you're here. Now, uh, we're a little dressed up because we have just come from uh, you giving a lecture on uh, singing the Psalms, uh, part of the Ging's lectures here at Southern Seminary, uh, and they were fantastic. Uh, I'm, I would like you to talk a little bit about that. Uh, what do you mean that Christians should sing the Psalms? I've been having an increasing love affair with the Psalms, but I've been learning how central Christ is to the Psalms and how they only really make sense when we sing them with Christ as the focus. He's the singer, the supreme singer of the Psalms. And so I've been trying to learn how to sing the Psalms as part of the choir of Christ, the Church of Christ, with Jesus leading us in the singing of the Psalms. And, and it's been fascinating to see some old insights from old Christian writers helping to understand uh, how, how the New Testament encourages us to read the Psalms. Absolutely. And uh, so when we are converted, we're joining the choir. Indeed. Indeed we are. I think Augustine said that there are only mockers and praisers. That, that is, that's right. Uh, and uh, when, what was, uh, you gave a, a Bonhoeffer quote about uh, even if in solitary confinement. Oh, yes, that? yes. Bonhoeffer said that even if you're in solitary confinement, when you're praying a psalm, you're praying it along with the whole church of Christ. That really is an amazing thing that, Singing the Psalms connects us with all of the people of God. Yes. Across time and space. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, do you think we'll sing Psalms, these Psalms in heaven? That's a really good question. Uh, the book of Revelation suggests we'll sing things that are not totally unlike Psalms. Right. Although I guess some of the Psalms of yearning and longing and waiting will no longer be relevant, I guess. Well, uh, Christopher, you have written so many things that are a blessing to the people of God. I'm so grateful for God's hand on you. Tell us how you came to be a believer, how God I, saved you. I was brought up, and this will seem very odd to many listeners, but I was brought up in England. Um, I was born in 1953, and in my childhood, um, formal Church of England 
church going was quite a normal thing. So that was kind of the wallpaper in the background to my childhood. I didn't really believe it, but I kind of assumed it was probably true. Hmm. And then when I was 17, I went to a, a friend invited me to a Christian summer camp. And I don't know if it was the first time I heard the gospel, but it was the first time I listened to the gospel and God opened my heart and I realized that I needed personally to receive Christ and to surrender to Jesus as Lord. And soon after that, you you went to Cambridge, correct? Yes, I studied engineering in Cambridge. So how how did a young Christian process what you were getting at university? Well, in those, they were remarkable days in Cambridge in the early 1970s. Uh, the, The Christian Union had if you included all the people in small groups, probably a 1,000 out of 10,000 undergraduates were in some way associated with evangelical Christianity. Really? It was extraordinary. I'm not saying they were all really, you know, fully, really converted Christians, but there were a lot of people at Christian meetings. We used to meet on a Saturday evening, the main Christian union meeting, and on a Saturday evening, which is kind of party time, we would have six or seven hundred undergraduates there. That's in the 1970s. Yes, it was extra- they were extraordinary days. Now, at what point did you feel called into ministry? Much later. So I went into, I was sponsored through Cambridge by a telecommunications company. I was an engineer. And then I trained as a teacher and I taught math for um, 12 years. And I used to preach occasionally in the churches we belonged to, maybe three or four times a year. And sometimes the the minister would say, you know, I wonder whether maybe you should consider doing pastoral ministry. And I would say, oh, I don't think so, because I love teaching. And it was a great thing for a Christian to do. I had lots of contact with non-Christians, and I loved that. So it was was really only in my mid-30s that I turn to train for pastoral ministry. So what did preparation for ministry look like then? In your mid-30s, already having gone through an education, how did you prepare for this ministry to which you felt called? We moved. Uh, we had three our three sons at that point, so we moved to Oxford. I went to a, a theological college. I did a theology degree in the university in Oxford. So that was my theological studies, and then I was ordained after that. Uh, and uh, I've skipped over a very important part of your life, and that's your wife, Carolyn. Uh, how old were you when the two of you married? We, I was 28, and Carolyn was 25. If I'd met her sooner, I would have married her sooner. Uh, She's well, lovely. Yes, yeah, she is. She is absolutely <laughs> lovely. I, I agree with you. There's just nothing like seeing a minister of the gospel's eyes light up when he talks about his wife. Yeah. I, I love to see it. Uh, it mine do, and I, I see it in yours. Yeah. So how did you meet? Uh, we met. We used to have meetings for Christian teachers in some local schools. They were private schools in the southwest of England, and I was teaching in one. And most of those meetings, the, it wasn't a good time for a young man to meet a wife. The kind of people who came probably were, were you weren't going to find a wife. Yeah. But I remember that evening. I was fronting the meeting I was hosting it so I was busy introducing the speaker but this really gorgeous girl turned up and I managed a short conversation with her and um, that's how we started how long was the courtship very short really I we met in September 
our first date was in December, I think. And then I asked her to marry me in March or April, and we got married in July. I didn't want to give her too much time to change her mind. That's right. Not bad. She, not, not she, bad. she might have had second thoughts. And uh, so you felt the call to minister, though, after you married? Yes, yes. We had three children by then. And how did how did she react to it when you told her you were feeling this? She was wonderful. We worked through it all together. We prayed through it all together. And she was fully with me in it all. In some ways, she's been happier being married to a pastor than to a teacher of math. Her, her math is not strong. <laughs> she, she laughs about that. It's uh, really not strong. Okay. She's wonderful, but she's not wonderful at math. And I think, uh, I think she's probably happier being married to a pastor. She's a wonderful pastor's wife. Uh, but I know one thing she's got on you. She plays the piano. She does play the piano, although I've started to learn. Uh, okay. Uh, and so what, what, what level do you play? I'm 65, and I've done what in England we call grade one, which is the kind of thing that an eight-year-old or seven-year-old would do. Okay. But I've done that, and I passed that, and I'm now working to grade two. I've ventured to say her math is better than your piano. I think that's probably right. <laughs> My piano isn't great. Uh, well, uh, what uh, are there some books that you would recommend that pastors should read, books that have influenced you that you think is, are really good for pastors to read? There's been some classics. I mean, J- mm-hmm. Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, Knowing God, I just think it ought always to be in print and to be read. Some of the old books by J.C. Ryle, mm-hmm. the 19th century uh, evangelical Knots Untied, Old Paths, and his book on holiness. Right. Wonderful, wonderful. I've loved some of the letters of John Newton. Uh, so the Banner of Truth Trust have published some of the letters yeah. of John Newton. I, I, they are just they are, wonderful. They are astounding. Yes, so perceptive. Uh, yeah. Uh, I actually had a one of my PhD students did his dissertation on the sermons of John Newton. And uh, I... I I gained a deeper appreciation of him, and then after that, read those the letters. Yeah. And uh, what an inc- incredible character! Uh, what What are your current? Tell me what your devotional practices look like. So your Your time alone with the Lord. Yes. What form does it take? It's, when do you do it? It's unimpressive. So we normally, both of us, the the alarm goes normally at six o'clock. I make Carolyn, I make myself a cup of tea. I make Carolyn a mug of hot water. She's very demanding. And um, then we, we read our Bibles separately. And my practice is to read. I read a psalm over two or three, four days and just gradually work through the psalms. I read an Old Testament chapter and a New Testament chapter each day. And I, I make a little note in a notebook of something that I'm going to try and um, take with me, although I don't always take it with me really in my in my mind and heart. Sometimes I have dry times when I don't get much. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have rich times. It, it varies a lot, but that's what I do. And then we pray together at the beginning of each day. After that, we pray together. We pray for what is in our diaries, people we're expecting to see. We always pray for our children and um, children-in-law and grandchildren uh, every every morning. And we pray for in a variety of different people. When you say you you are reading through a psalm and you take 
you'll take the same sum for two or three days, two or three days, or, or four if it's longer. Are days. you looking at commentaries or simply reading? No, that I'm text? simply reading. I'm simply reading and and seeking to in English. Reading yes, in English. in English. Yes, yes. I I I, I do read in Hebrew, but my Hebrew isn't fluent. And um, I need my computer on to read in Hebrew. I need I need help with that. So I read in English. Yes. Uh, so your no computer helps. It's just you and the text. Yes. Just you and yes. and yes. in your English text. And so you meditate. You read a verse and you're meditating on that verse. Yes. Yes. And turn it into prayer, in 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 some way. So you're praying the scripture. Trying to. Yeah. Wonderful. Trying to. Um, you have written several books. Is there one that stands out in your mind that is uh, a favorite that you look back at it? Are are they all? Are they like your children? You love them all equally, but in different ways. I think some more than others. I loved writing a little book called Bible Delight, which is an exposition of Psalm one one nine. I really loved writing uh-huh. that. Um, I loved. Well, I don't know if I loved. I think I hated writing the commentary on Job. Really. Now, that's important. Uh, You hated writing. It was a struggle. Really? Why? Well, partly because in the middle of writing it, I had what you'd probably call a nervous breakdown. So there was a strange appropriateness in a way. I was writing some of it in a dark time in my own life. I think it's important for people to hear that, though, that uh, devotion to the Lord, walking with the Lord, being in the Word daily, being a man of prayer is not an exemption yeah. from emotional struggle, spiritual struggle. I think I've—I mean, I think I've gradually got to know myself better and my frailties, and I am pretty frail. Mm-hmm. I'm probably more introvert than extrovert, and I—I I think I'm—I'm I'm probably more aware of how I tick and my vulnerabilities. I hope so. Um, writing a commentary on Job is difficult because you've just got huge sections there that are largely wrong. Yes. yes. And you're having to comment on things that the record of that text is 100% infallible, but the the truth of the words coming out of the mouth yes, of that yes. character are, are often wrong. Or it's very close, complicated. Yeah. Close to the truth, you know, yes. close enough to the truth to be dangerous. Yes. Yes, exactly that. And, and, were, and yeah. page after page after page, you're, yes. you're having to point that out. And there were times when I, I, I was thinking, why did I ever sign the contract to write this wretched book? Um, but God in his kindness seems to have used it. Oh, absolutely. It, it really is fantastic. I mean, I have spoken to several professors here at Southern that th- they said it's just the best commentary on Job they've ever seen. Oh, that's very kind. And uh, the Lord used it, and he used it uh, like so much of our ministries. It it comes through a crucible of suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, there's one thing that even God can't do, and that is there can't be a resurrection until there's first a death. Yes. And Paul says, you know, the power of the resurrection through the fellowship of his sufferings being made like him in his death. Yes, yes. And uh, you've. I'm sure in your life you've felt that many times. And I, I often reflect that God has promised to conform us to the image of his son. He's promised to make us like Jesus. And I often wish it didn't hurt so much, but he will do it. Yeah. And in the end, it'll be worth it. 
and to trust him to do it in his way is that i mean that's the big step of following christ i think it is isn't it i love to be in control and same in pastoral work isn't it when you're a pastor i love to be in control of being a pastor and to feel that i've got my strategies and i'm in charge of it all and the truth is that god has his ways of humbling us where did you pastor I pastored in in Cambridge, where we now live again, in in the east of England. Um, I I was an assistant pastor to a very fine senior pastor called Mark Ashton in St. Andrew the Great Church in the center of Cambridge. I learned a huge amount, particularly from seeing him. And then I led a church plant from there to a village on the outskirts of Cambridge called Little Shelford. It was a small place. But I, I th- th- those years as senior pastor of a small church were precious years. They, they are. In many ways, it's a very difficult task to be the pastor of a small church. Yes, yes. Uh, everyone's voice is louder. Yes. They, they, they all have uh, uh, your ear. They, their opinions matter in ways that in a large church, no one person or one family can do that. But That's right. And I was lonely. Having come from a relatively, in English terms, a larger church with a staff team, I had no other member of, paid member of staff to start with. I had volunteers, but that's not quite the same thing. After two years, I got a part-time apprentice and then a full-time apprentice. Five years in, I got an assistant. Uh, you preached every week? I preached every week, yep. Uh, once, twice, more? Um, usually once, because I did have some lay preachers I was training, sometimes twice. Did you preach through books? What, what was your... Yes, yes, I preached through books. And that kept me going in a way. I mean, that yeah. thrilled me. And one of the privileges of being a senior pastor, I mean, as you, as you know, is that you can think, right, this season we'll do Romans yeah. 1 to 8, or this season we'll do That's right. some of Luke's gospel, or we'll do some of Ezekiel, or whatever it is. One of the great graces of my life is that there's never been a Sunday morning that I got up and said, I really don't want to preach. I love, I mean, it's hard, but oh the, yeah, the senior pastor I trained under said that when he was preaching, life made sense. And I, I get that. Yeah, there, there is no joy like it to me. Mm. Uh, and, I'll, and it's compounded when you really are in love with these people you pastor. Yes. And I'm blessed uh, to be in love with the people I pastor and to feel that love. And so... There's just this love between shepherd and sheep, and you're giving the word of God that you know this. This is what will transform their lives, and it's wonderful. There's just isn't no thrill it? like it. I often think I, I, we want to encourage young men to think that if they can love the flock entrusted to their charge and preach to them and pray for them and love them and get alongside them, there is no higher calling. And sometimes they think if I could be a conference speaker or something yeah, that's else, right. that would be better. That's right. It's not better. It's not better. And in my preaching class, I teach that the greatest preaching in the world is always pastoral preaching. Yes. You can bring in the very polished speaker, mm-hmm. and he has something of an impact. Yeah. But where lives are transformed is in the week in and week out, line upon line, precept upon precept, preaching of the Word of God. Yes, yes. From by a, someone that is walking through life with them. Yes, yes. 
That's right. I say this too, that you can download your favorite preachers that's and right. go to the internet. Oh, that's and, right. and you'll learn things from them, but they don't know you and love you and pray for you. That's right. They, there are many preachers far better than I available to my yeah, people and me. all the time. But I'm going through life with them. I, yes. I have dedicated their children and, yeah. and buried their parents yes. and married uh, yeah. their children. And there's just nothing like it. And there is nothing like that, is there? Because no. you, you, you look no. out over a church where you're the pastor and you know them. You've wept with them. You've rejoiced with them. So what led you to leave the pastorate? And to become That's a, really good question. a writer in residence. Well, to start with, a man called David Jackman asked me mm-hmm. if I would take over from him running something called the Cornhill Training Course, which is a training course for part of Proclamation Trust. Part of Proclamation Trust in London. And rightly or wrongly, I thought it seemed to be a square peg and square hole thing that that my gifting seemed to fit with that. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a go. I've missed being a pastor since the day I stopped. I mean, in in one sense, you're always a pastor, aren't you, in terms of your heart. But I've missed being a pastor of a local church. And so the Cornhill training course I did for 11 years, it was a wonderful job. It was rich. We had wonderful students. I keep in touch with many of them. Um, But it wasn't being pastor of a local church. And, yeah, you're very pastoral in the way you write, in the way you speak. But... It's pastoring from a distance, and I know yeah. you miss yes. the up-close-and-personal aspects yes. of it. I do. Uh, I do. Um, uh, what is the greatest advice you would offer for aspiring pastors or pastors in training? I think that if you, if you really believe that the gospel is God's instrument to change people, and you really believe that the ministry of the Word of God with prayer is what you're called to, and that there is no higher calling than to do that wherever God places you, and to be free of the sort of ambition that things, if only if I could be in a bigger church or a richer church or a nicer church or a different area. There's a lot of discontent, isn't there, in the pastor's heart, thinking if only I were Mm -hmm. somewhere else or different people. And to think if if I can be a pastor and hang on in there and go on doing that, that that's... A wonderful thing. Peter said, feed the flock of God, which is among you. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, a lot of guys waste time thinking about if I could pastor that church yeah. or a church yeah. like that, and yeah. they're neglecting the flock of God yes. among them. Yeah. God put you there for a reason. Love yeah. those people. Teach those people. Yes. Even. And it's interesting, isn't it? We sometimes think in a very worldly way, don't we? We think oh, that yes. a city centre church or a, a student university college church is the strategic thing. It's fascinating. The Puritans in England often ministered in rather small rural churches, which we would think weren't strategic, but God made them strategic. That's right. And some of the greatest ministries have been just like that. Uh, well, um uh, you wrote Married for God. Talk about your main argument in that book and your view of marriage. Gladly, yes. I wrote a heavy footnotey, rather dull book beforehand in 2003. And that's really where the work was done. And then Married for God was a more accessible version of the same thing. And the, the big insight 
which is an old insight, but I, I may have maybe sort of rediscovered in a way, is that in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone. That's not about loneliness. Right. Uh, he's put in the garden to look after the garden, and God gives him a helper. And therefore, man and wife as, as working together, serving God in the garden. It's an outward-looking view of marriage. And it's fascinating in our culture because, I mean, often it's not marriage, it's just coupledom. Uh, but it's right. an inward-looking thing, isn't it? It's a soft focus, each being everything to the other thing, which is self-destructive. And the paradox is that when we serve together in God's garden, actually the delight well, increases. That's right. You have a lot of modern marriages today that might be good models of how a successful business functions but they are not a picture of how Christ loves the church. Yes, yeah. And that's a very different thing. We're, we're called to be more than merely efficient yes. in yes. marriage. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the rich man and Lazarus in Luke's gospel, the rich man seems to have been a good family man. I mean, he cared for his brothers. But it's not real love because, as Jesus said, if you only love those who love you, yeah. you know better than the outsiders to the people of God. And so... A healthy marriage is a marriage where the love overflows and, and serves others in God's world. Uh, I want to ask you a strange question. Uh, so did you grow up on the King James Version? Or what, I, what was what was used in the church where you grew up and what translation think, shaped you? Well, I think the, the RSV probably for all its faults was the one when I was first converted that was mostly being used. Uh, some people used a translation called the New English Bible, which was a, right, a really bad, um, yeah, a really bad. Translation. I've always been fairly partial to the RSV. I mean, there are some problems with it, but yeah. I, I do think uh, the diction of it is yes. very good. Yes, uh, the, the, and uh, certain study Bibles that I had with the RSV were very, very helpful in my yeah. in my youth. Mm. Uh, but I grew up King James. Yes, completely immersed in it. Uh, when I got to college and my love of Shakespeare uh, was because of my being steeped in the King James yes, Bible. Yes. Uh, there's nothing like it. I am selfishly would still preach out of it if I could, but uh, I realize that people today just aren't able to read it without a, just a mental curtain they, going they, up. They didn't understand it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so talk to me about, about, Carolyn and the way that you do ministry together now because yeah. you're not you're not a pastor you're a writer yes but you're still called to she is your helper yes and you're called to do this ministry together so how what does that look like now we serve together in the church so so a certain amount of hospitality getting alongside often younger couples Carolyn gets alongside a number of women in the church and they they love being cared for by her. We get alongside one or two PhD students and others at Tyndale House, try and um, encourage them. Uh, so we do that. She does something herself. She, she, she serves on the board of the London City Mission, which is a, a, an example of a, a Victorian era city mm -hmm. mission that has kept the gospel central. It's a fine work, and she serves on the board of that. And I pray for her when she does that. And she used to coordinate three conferences a year for pastors' wives that really? the Proclamation Trust um, run. She's handed that over now, but she's got a great heart for pastors' wives. Explain to us what Tyndale House is. 
Tyndale House is a unique place. It's an evangelical biblical studies research library in Cambridge, um, sort of with informal links to the university, but it's in, it's independent and okay. it's firmly evangelical. It's got a good biblical studies library, but it's also a, a fellowship of people seeking to encourage one another to be faithful in scholarship. So uh, Dr. Peter Williams, who heads it, and Dr. Dirk Jonkint, who's the academic vice principal and the senior leadership team, they do a fine work of setting a clear gospel tone of faithfulness to Scripture there. And so as writer-in-residence, what do you do? I have a wonderful job because I'm not paid, but I have no duties. So I have a desk, I belong, I can, I'm a kind of adjunct member of, of the uh-huh. faculty. I have no duties. I have opportunities. I mean, I'll preach in chapel maybe two or three times a, a term to, to the Tyndale House, to the, to the fellowship there. Um, and I get alongside some people and try and encourage them. But I don't have to do any of it. So I'm, um, humanly speaking, I'm a free agent. It's, and, a, it's a great job. I recommend it. And you work with Cambridge students? Uh, Not particularly. I don't really work. Our, our church has quite a ministry amongst okay. Cambridge students. Um, I, I'm not particularly involved with that, although it's terrific. Well, your writing and your speaking is an incredible blessing. I am so grateful to you for taking this time to be on Pastor Well. Really very kind. I like to wrap up with what I call the twinkling of an eye round. Just to ask them rapid fire questions and and hear your answer to them. So uh, you ready for it? Far away. Okay, what two or three preachers have most influenced you? I think in the early days, John Stott in his early days which I think were his mm-hmm. best days as an expository preacher. Dick Lucas has yeah. been a very, very influential um, preacher on uh, for, for me. Those Probably those two would be the top two. Okay. Is there a movie that you watch over and over and still love? I watch Casablanca. My family lo- laugh at me. Uh, Casablanca is just one of the great movies. Yeah, Everybody yeah. should know it. Well, I agree. It is a great movie. I'm, I'm a David Lean guy, though. I, funny, you like an American movie, and I I like a British movie. Uh, what what uh, what's the best thing about living in Cambridge? I think it's the friendships that we make. It's, it, it's very flat. I mean, it's a nice enough city and so on. But I think it's the friendships. We okay, make. now I can't believe you describe it like that. When when my wife and I go there, we are overwhelmed by its history and its beauty. And uh, there's a lot of history. There, there really is. I mean, That's the buildings, true. the architecture. Yes. Have you ever gone punting? Uh, yes. Have I fallen in? Yes. Really? You've yeah. fallen but, in? But a long time ago. Long as an time. undergraduate. <laughs> well, yeah. It's not a good idea to drink the water. It wouldn't do you any good. All right. When, when you come to the United States, what's the strangest thing you observe here in the United States? Is there anything that just makes you think, those Americans are crazy, or I can't believe they do this? It, or it seems just t- totally odd to you. Sometimes you, you clap at the end of a sermon or a conference talk. Yeah. And in, in Britain, we would think that was very odd. Yeah. Alistair Begg explained to me once that it means thank you. Yeah, that's right. It's thank you. It's, it's, so it's appreciation. Strange, yeah. It's appreciation to the servant yeah. of God. And eating, eating grits in the South. What? Yeah. yeah. That, uh, that's okay. something different. Okay. Here, uh, do you drink iced tea when you're here? Yes. I quite yeah. like iced tea. Do you like Sweet tea here in the South? You no. ever have sweet tea? Well, the doctors have told me not to have too much sugar. And oh. Coming to the to the U.S. is not good for that. No. Oh, no. It's not. We're big on our, our sugar. What music do you listen to? 
Uh, mainly classical. Mainly classical. I, I favorite composer? Romantic, really. Brahms. I love Brahms. Mm, interesting. You have a favorite football team? Yes, I support Swansea City. So oh. we're in the championship, which is the second league down. We were in the Premier League, which is the top one, but we're now in the championship. Right. Yeah, bumped down. Yeah. Uh, so is there your favorite team to hate? Is there a team you just really loathe? A football mm, team? No, I don't think there is really. Okay, no. see, because in basketball, like in college basketball, I'm a Kentucky fan, but I loathe Duke. Uh, so yeah, I just didn't know if you had a team you hated. So uh, what's your most cherished thing? Not necessarily of any spiritual value, a, a pen, a chair, anything that you just like, I love my thing. I think it's the autograph I have of Winston Churchill which he signed for me when I was five. I was born on his birthday. Oh, really? And I had a great uncle in Parliament, and he signed a book especially for me. That's quite precious. That is precious. Do you have it framed? Uh, no, I don't. No, I probably ought to. Oh, you should. You yeah. should. I have on my desk a, a Broadus's uh, homework that he assigned to a student, and Broadus wrote out the assignment, and the student had to translate Broadus's English into Greek. Wonderful. And... I mean, it's priceless to me, you know, to have yeah. that here. Yes. It's incredible. Great. Well, you are a dear brother. I thank God for you, for your ministry, and uh, I appreciate you being on Pastor Well. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, you're welcome. And I thank all of you for tuning in. I hope that you will subscribe on, uh, watch us on YouTube and subscribe there or on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you again next time on Pastor Well.